Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Effortless Conversations. This week we have with us Aaron Larkin, a People Operations Manager at Princeton Mortgage. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Aaron. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what a People Operations Manager does? So a People Operations Manager is sort of like the new age version of HR. I think that HR has this really terrible reputation of like the fun police and just like focusing on policies. Um, and people operations really tries to bring back the humanistic approach to um, a business and focusing more on training and development, culture creation, and really creating an environment that is collaborative and where you are utilizing the whole person instead of just like their one skill set or what you might find on their resume. So you're more interested in the person themselves versus their job title and what comes along with that? Yeah, it's about creating a, a space where people are engaged and where they're happy to be. Um, I think that there's a ton of data out there that supports that when people are happy and they feel fulfilled in more than one area of their life, they're more likely to have higher productivity, lower call-outs, things like that. That makes sense. Do you think that, um do you think HR got its negative connotation from Toby in the office? I've not seen the office. <laughs> I had to ask. I just I've, I couldn't help myself. I've never seen the office, but I think that part of the rebranding of HR is the name itself. I mean, human resources right. is so robotic. It's it it makes you think of something that you would see just on like an income statement or a balance sheet as just something that you can move around within the organization organization with like a financial cost instead of thinking more about the holistic approach. Yeah, that is strange. I've never really put much thought into that, but human resources does make it sound kind of like dystopian. Yeah, it's like you have your tech resources, you have like these admin, and then it's just like humans, like right. our, our persons, <laughs> the bodies in our space. That's so funny. So it's like, so it seems like what you guys have done is, is like take the classic model of HR and really expand it to say like, well, yeah, we're concerned about, you know, we want to make sure that you're thriving in your job, but also that you're thriving personally. Correct. That's really cool. So like when you come across somebody who that you notice, like, is this more toward like the beginning of someone starting this job or do, do, does it go throughout their entire time here that you're focused on? Like are you, are you have your finger on the pulse of kind of everybody at Princeton or is it? The intention is um, to really, I view HR or people operations as a tool belt in leadership in the management team's belt, like a tool that that's to be utilized. So if someone has an employee relation matter that they need help um, working through, like I would want them to come to me so we can talk through what a solution to that might be. Or if a team member has a dilemma that they're trying to work through, um, that we would have a conversation about that. And so it really is designed to go through the whole life cycle of someone's employment from recruiting and talent and, and finding the person that's gonna fit the culture and, and stay engaged and be happy in that environment um, all the way through to assisting them when they offboard. And um, there's a lot of like offboarding resources that a company could offer to help transition. And we do some of those things like a letter of recommendation or giving references when someone has chosen their next employer. That's really interesting. I, I never would have thought that there was much focus on offboarding at a company. Mm -hmm. What what kind of walk me through that a little bit? What does that look like? 
So we, the offboarding process for us um, includes a survey. So we ask team members to go through and just give really candid feedback about their experience at Princeton, what prompted them to leave the company, if they had reached out and started a conversation prior to making that decision to leave, um, so that we can utilize that data to improve um, the way that we operate when someone is still employed with us. I give that to them via survey because sometimes people feel more comfortable um, writing down their thoughts than they feel communicating them in person. Right. But then I also do an exit interview with that person and I like to have the survey first so that if I see any red flags I can drill down into that and like where where did we go wrong here? Like how did you start to feel this way? And then on the flip side some people feel more comfortable like having a conversation and telling me things that they don't want like documented forever. So we go through that data collection really and then we supply them with everything that they need to know about like returning their equipment. There's also a lot of questions about like benefits and like where do I stand now? Is my family still covered through the end of the month? What do I do with my 401k? Can I transition it over to an IRA? Or um, again, letting people know whether or not they're eligible for rehire or not so that they know whether or not to utilize us as a reference um, when they go to their next employer and that sort of thing. That's really interesting. I never would I never would have put much thought into the, into the offboarding process. That's what we do. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so, is this model that you that you guys are using, where it's you know this kind of expanded HR model, is, is this something that you see standard across most companies these days, or is, are some people kind of struggling to keep up with that, or still sticking with that more archaic model? I think that. Princeton has done a really good job of creating a space where people can specialize in some of these different areas within people operations. We have Olivia who handles the, the whole onboarding process, so that's like a really um, tailored experience for each person that onboards with us. And then Cheryl is like an expert when it comes to those benefits and payroll. And so as companies get bigger, you do tend to see those functions siloed a bit. So I wouldn't say that we are um, unconventional in our structure, but I would say that our approach to people is less common and a little bit new, a little bit more modern. Um, Princeton certainly does not view people as just a number, and there's a lot of thought that goes into the employee experience, and, and no decision is made without compassion as it relates to each person. Okay, and so you and you came here pretty recently, right? And so I'm. Um, was this a model that was in place before you got here, or have you kind of helped expand that since you've come to Princeton? Or is that something that draw, drew you to Princeton originally? That's something that drew me to Princeton. So I'm not really interested in working for an employer that already has like a really robust HR, people operations department already created. I was more focused on being a part of that process of creating so that I could lend some of my um, experience and expertise in that development. When I got here, however, it seems as though each of those different functions that I spoke to reported to different people, so mm -hmm. they didn't really fall under one umbrella. So for the first time, we have operations, recruiting, um, the onboarding, and the payroll and benefits all under one house, and it really creates a more collaborative space than what I understand existed before here. It sounds like more of a brain trust you guys have going on. Yeah. That's it's really, really cool. cool. Um, so you speak uh, like some of your experience beforehand and everything. Were you in the mortgage industry before this or was it no. a different kind of company or? No, so when I was interviewing at Princeton, I was like straight up, I have no mortgage experience, but I have people experience and I can support people regardless of the industry. It just takes some time to learn 
the titles, mm -hmm. you know, what a processor does, what an underwriter does. And I'm certainly still learning that. I've only been, I've been with the company just shy of four months. Um, so certainly still um, a learning curve there. Yeah, I'm sure it's wild. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm trying to, I'm still trying to place people in departments yeah. and what job goes where and everything. So I, I can't imagine, I mean, I'm sure that the tree that you're dealing with all the time is just massive. Um, so while we're backing up a little bit and talking about your previous experience, why don't we, why don't we go way back and tell me about, you know, have you always been interested in, in human, re human resources, the robotic human resources? We, we can call it HR. Okay, have you always been interested in, in helping people with, uh, professionally? Um, I would love to sit here and be like, I just fell into HR, but like, I'm very much one of those per those people whose like career path was very intentional and mm -hmm. very like methodical. So when I finished my bachelor's degree, I knew that I wanted to work in an organization in some capacity in like a people oriented way. I was more focused at that time on public relations. And so my degree was in organizational communications and then, um, I did my master's degree in public administration and that's where I really started to dabble in some HR coursework but at that time I was in property management okay. in an office manager capacity so I was gaining a lot of experience with like payroll and some of the benefits and then I just like stayed married to that idea of like I'm gonna get a job in HR I'm going to to make that progression and I went into recruiting and then made the transition over to HR management about six years ago okay I'm sure dealing with tenants as a property manager kind of helped you get some some rough experience with dealing with people huh yeah it really um, I reflect back on some of the conversations I've had with tenants and it's just I think that that's where I really learned the ability to be like these are the rules and like as much as sometimes a person's situation is like really terrible or like whatever it may be at the end of the day like I'm here to support the business and we will not be a functional business if we make exceptions left and right to all of these policies and I know that that sounds like really callous and really cold but I can't look at just the individual because these decisions if we were to start to get like crazy it could mean a huge impact on like all of the other people for the company so I'm very I'm always very mindful of like maintaining um, a compliant route for the company and like protecting the business from that perspective. And that's a delicate line to walk because you're because you're the face of the company but you're also having to deliver the bad news that like maybe we can't do exactly what you need for your situation. And well I think that that's where like when I mentioned being a tool for managers mm -hmm. that in my opinion like that's really information that should be coming from someone's manager and then I'm sort of in the background like helping to navigate that conversation and coach through those difficult conversations um so that it so that it doesn't ruin that like safe space almost for coming to someone in HR with a viable complaint or anything like that. If you've had like a negative, if you go to HR and you're like, can I use, can I have like 25 extra hours of PTO and I have to be like, no, you can't, like we have a policy for that. Then that person might not want to come talk to me later when they're like, hey, I have this like legitimate issue that I want to file a complaint or what have you. Right. So back to your time as a as a project or a property manager yeah do you have like one particular story that sticks in your mind that you like are like oh man I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore oh my gosh I have so <laughs> many I want to hear one I well first of all I when I first moved to Charleston mm -hmm. I am um, I had been in commercial property management at the time so like leasing out office spaces and when I came down here I landed what I thought was gonna be like the best like 
property manager role at this apartment community that was in North Charleston. And I showed up there on my first day and I was like, I got bamboozled. Like this is a terrible part of town. I was new to Charleston, so I had no idea. The people um, who were formerly in that office, like the property had just been acquired, were literally let go on Friday. And then my team walked in on Monday. So like the property of like 350 units, no one had any idea that their management company was changing. So when they came to pay rent, it was like all new faces. Someone threw a brick through our office window. They like it like welcome to north charles like exactly like <laughs> mess up the space i had one resident who got into a fight with her boyfriend and they were on the second story and he was like walking out angrily on the first floor and she leaped off her balcony with a knife and stabbed him in the shoulder oh lord i also had a resident i was nine months pregnant and uh, my husband was away for the army and i got a phone call at like two o'clock in the morning someone had left um, a pot on their stove and left and it caught fire. And so when I drove up to the property, like this whole building of like 30 or 40 units, everyone was out in the streets. The fire department was there. Everyone's like, are we gonna get hotels? Or like, what are we, and I'm like ready to give birth at any moment. Oh Lord. It was so, wild. so you didn't go into, you didn't go into labor, did you? Okay. It, so <laughs> that would have been a great story. Did you have to, yeah, it would have been. Mm -hmm. Did you have to get everybody apart, or uh, hotels? We didn't. Thankfully the fire <laughs> was contained to that one apartment unit so like we did have to wait a very long time for everyone to get access back into the building but. i'm sure yeah there was a there was a fire in apartment complex near where i live not too long ago and they're still trying to clean yeah. it out that's that's what i cannot even imagine so i'm sure like moving into a more corporate space was a little bit of a relief certainly yeah you're not dealing with crazy tenants <laughs> jumping yeah. off of balconies and stabbing their boyfriends that's i also wild. this is also one of my favorite stories that apartment community i worked at um we had a we had a family in a second story unit that um, didn't speak very good English, and they had a water leak. But due to their inability to like communicate, they didn't feel comfortable reporting their water leak, so they just didn't. And we had a courtesy officer, you know, a police officer who lives, which is never a good sign. Like right. if the apartment community is like, we have five courtesy officers, that's no good. Mm -hmm. um, my courtesy officer came home at the end of night shift and like the ceiling of the second story apartment had fallen through, like their bathroom was in his his unit. Oh, what a nightmare. Like toilet, bathtub, everything. Yeah, just like, oh. he was like, I just want to go to bed. Like I'm tired. My shift is over. We did have to pay. We oh. moved him into a different apartment. That's a nightmare. I, um, I had a similar story when I just moved into the townhouse that we live in right now. I had hooked up the uh, washing machine wrong and the washing <laughs> machines on the second floor and uh, water was, unbeknownst to me, just creeping throughout the floor. And then one night, I used to work in the film industry, so I would get off at 4 or 5 a.m. and I was sitting in my chair at 5 a.m. and I just heard like water dripping. And I didn't know what was going on. And I turned around and I just saw water dripping right out of the ceiling. And I walked over there and I looked at it. And as I stood underneath it, it just oh my caved gosh. onto me. Luckily, the, the washing machine didn't fall <laughs> through the floor onto me. Just the ceiling broke and all the water that had been sitting in there yeah. fell. 
What a nightmare. I can't I imagine. Was, that happened to me, actually, too. Really? My, we cloth diaper our kids, mm -hmm. and so it has, like, our toilet has, like, the attachment for, like, a diaper sprayer, and my husband was working night shift, and I thought that I'd, like, turned off the water to... I swear I turned it off. Like, I think that thing was loose and, like, came This back. is still a point of contention, huh? <laughs> yes, it's still... Well, it happened twice. So okay. The, what I'm about to tell you happened twice, so my husband's like, this is you, Aaron. This uh -huh. is not an accident. And so we like put the diaper sprayer up in this like vase on the back of the toilet and I like went to bed and everything. And my husband got home from night shift and like walked in our front door and it was flooded. The first floor was flooded and he looked up and there was a light fixture just pouring water. Like oh, it had just no. run all night. And he was so livid, but like I said, it happened twice. <laughs> same light fixtures, same, same everything? Same everything. And I'm like, this isn't me. And then I went back to like, who installed the diaper sprayer? Mm -hmm. Not me. Mm-hmm. You know? That's a good way to do it. Just back up a little bit. See, it, I think like, the, the problem was when it was put in. root cause analysis <laughs> here. Right. Faulty diaper sprayer installment. That's great. Mm -hmm. So just um, don't let Aaron come to your house to wash your diapers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we've spoken a little bit about... Um, the new and improved HR and kind of how you guys will build culture. Um, can you speak a little bit about how, because Princeton prides itself on its culture and, and the culture that they, they preach and they do live it. And I'm, I'm curious kind of like how, what, what's that process? Like when someone comes on and you're like explaining the culture to them, like how, like walk me through that a yeah, little bit. Yeah, well I think you have to back up a little bit because speaking to culture really starts during the interview process. and. We, the recruiting team, try to be really, really transparent and upfront about what to expect here. It doesn't do anyone any, it, it's no good for anyone to like lie about what your first day or your first year would look like and have someone be unhappy. So we really start navigating that conversation during the interview process. And I like to give people a little bit of time to resonate with what I've told them because one of the things that I love about Princeton is that a lot of common workplace um, complaints that people have has been resolved here at Princeton like we have a solution for that um, but the solution doesn't look like what a lot of people would think about um, when you hear people talk about like oh my workplace is so toxic I wish I worked someplace that didn't have that well no one really stops to think what does an environment that's how do you get to a non-toxic environment how do you stop that sort of thing and at Princeton, it's radical candor and transparency. And so as much as people might say, I want like a workplace free of gossip, well, are you prepared for the alternative? Which is hearing a lot of feedback and being very transparent about what's going on and how you're doing. And, and I try to present it in that way of like, is that something that could really work for you? The other thing that Princeton does is um, we use our rules of the game to really drive our decision making and when we were just recently doing our leadership event we we practice going through with our rules of the game and presenting different scenarios that have happened here at Princeton and do these list of eight or nine values give us an answer on how to move forward with whatever situation we're dealing with and everything that we came up with they did now granted that's a living document and so as we pres as we find ourselves in situations that are unanswered we'll have to reevaluate and that's really how it should be it shouldn't just be like a list that goes up on the wall of your of your office space and we say there are values and no one ever talks about it or speaks to it um, but going back a little bit 
when you onboard, like I said, that conversation is starting right at the beginning. We do culture training during your first week um, with Mark, our CRO, who goes through what those values are and what that looks like. Um, Rich, our CEO, is getting in front of the team every month for an all-hands meeting and really speaking to that. Managers, again, going back to the decision-making, are reinforcing the way that we're moving forward or the things that we're doing with the why, and the why is the value. Okay. And so you speak of the rules of the game as kind of like a living document. It's almost kind of like the constitution, I would say, yeah. of Princeton Mortgage. So what, what, is, what, what are the rules of the game? Is that is that a crazy question for me to ask you that like like what give me a give me a general outline like if, if when you're looking at a situation and you're referencing the rules and can you give me a scenario yeah so the number one one is the number one rule okay. is is to be all in and I think that that being number one is really critical because you really can't follow through with any of any of our other values unless you are all in and what that means is is be committed be present um, always be putting your best foot forward when it comes to Princeton and your role and your responsibilities so like whatever you're going to commit to commit to it wholeheartedly that's number one some of the other values are like I, I said be um, the radical candidness and transparency so that's something that we all need to be able to both give and receive and that is an adjustment and um, radical candor is kind of like just giving and, and accepting feedback right, right just right. like true feedback you're not talking yep. about it with other people you're going right to the source and instead of becoming defensive when you receive that feedback so we pra I know the leadership and management team was practicing that for a while just giving and receiving feedback because you can't receive it well then you can't give it well and so you need to be comfortable with both sides of that so that's one of them be the CEO of your own life um, I find that value to be very empowering everyone here can take ownership of any problem that they're facing this is not an environment where if you're faced with a situation or a challenge that you get to just sit back and be like I don't know what to do I can't solve this so it's like not my my issue to deal with it's like you found the problem so you're the problem solver mm -hmm. and there's a lot of autonomy given to people to find a solution and to move forward and and we're not a company that is like married to titles and like this structure of hierarchy that you're afraid to to step outside so the CEO of your own life um, so there's really no stay in your lane here at Princeton it's not like because when I was working on film sets, you know, everything was very departmentalized and it was like, you know, if I was working in costumes and props came yeah. over, you'd be like, you know, stay in your lane. This isn't your deal. But, it, okay, but can't, like, costumes be considered a prop? Okay, well, if we want to get no, into no, the... No, I'm, like, asking, Yeah, yeah, if, like, I mean, I could, yeah, you can get into the nuances. So, like, when you get into it, like, costumes, handles, clothes, like, helmets or props, watches or props. Helmets wouldn't be a part of a costume? Helmets or props, watches or props. What if you're props, an astronaut? Rings or costumes. Well, rings or props, unless it's an engagement ring, then it's costumes. That's, a, there, that's a weird distinction. There's a lot of really weird nuance. So it's like, there's a lot of opportunity to say, hey, not my, not my problem. Yeah. So it, it's, it's new for me coming into this where it's like any, pro, any problem that comes up, anybody in the company has the, the ability to stop yeah. the assembly. Like, you know, that was one of the things with Toyota when they were building their assembly line is like, they they had this great assembly line, but they the way that they, you know, the distinction was that anybody on the line was able to hit the button and stop the line and say, here's a problem that we need to fix. Mm -hmm. Where you know that wasn't the case on most places, and it would slow stuff down. But they were able to start really pumping out cars, and that's just a classic example of that. So 
it's nice to be in a place where anybody at any point can identify a problem and stop the line and say, hey, look, this needs to be addressed. I'll yeah. fix it, but this is, why the pro this is why the line is stopped. It's also, it doesn't always have to be a problem, right? right? It can also be like an innovative idea or a solution or like something else that you're like, hey, what, can we like try this? And more often than not, if you make a good business case for it, like why not? Yeah, and it can come from anywhere. That's, mm -hmm. that, that's, uh, that's been one thing to learn too is like, you know, anybody can have a great idea. Right. I mean, and a lot of times you're so close to what you're working on that somebody outside of that is gonna have a better idea. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's nice to know that that is, you know, realized by the management, you know, yeah. in a company. It's, sure. it's a nice change. Um, so speaking of like, you know, radical candor is, is, is a term that's thrown around a lot. And I know we just spoke about like giving and receiving feedback, but that is something that, it's a muscle that you have to grow. And so is that something that you guys really help, um, I don't want to call it HR, people ops, people operations? Yeah. Is that something that you guys, at people ops, like, you really try to coach that? Like, um, like if, if you hear from somebody that somebody's getting really defensive with feedback, like, will you reach out to them and say, hey, look, like, what's going on? That's the intention, okay. um, you know, that if a manager doesn't feel equipped to handle that conversation themselves, that they would come to me or anyone else on the people ops team to talk through um, some problem solving there. But we would certainly like to get to a point where we are implementing more um, trainings focused on our culture, how to grow some of these muscles that people um, are that are maybe underdeveloped for some people. And I think. Princeton, like pr coming to Princeton is like getting out of a bad relationship. So people bring with them like so many bad behaviors or like concepts about what to expect from their employer because we are so different um, that it takes time to like, you're not gonna get fired if you go to your boss and say like, hey, I, your communication style isn't really like working with me and I receive feedback a lot better if you presented it X, Y, Z way. Like that's welcome, that's encouraged. Like you have an obligation to share that. Um, but getting someone used to the idea that like, we're not gonna fire you for saying that. Like there's like a ramp up period to getting accustomed to working at Princeton. Yeah, for sure. I can I can identify with that. So when you're when you're speaking with somebody in the interview process mm -hmm. and you're kind of like outlining the culture, are you reading their face to kind of like see like see cuz like if you say, you know, the, be the CEO of your own life and you explain that, do you kind of like read their face to see like, oh, they think I'm full of crap or they, they this is something they're not used to. Like, will you kind of like go hard on go harder on that like more ex explain that more and kind of try to get them more comfortable? Yeah, I try to come out of the gate with some of the values that are a little bit different for people to adjust to, to see how they handle that. Again, a lot of people, like if I were to just come to someone and say, hey, wouldn't it be great to work someplace where like no one ever gossips about one another? They're going to be like, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Like that's, per that's what I've been looking for. Like that's exactly why I'm leaving my company. But if I go to someone and I'm like, hey, are you comfortable? Like sharing that type of feedback with your boss or with a peer like would you be comfortable if you were on a phone call with someone and started to say how john never emails you back if that person if john was like three weighed in sharing that feedback directly with john and then suddenly it's like well <laughs> yeah I, I could do that like that that you know and they'll they'll sort of answer that way or there's someone that's just like 
Yeah, absolutely. Like if I'm allowed to do that, I would love to do that, you know? Yeah, it's, it's funny to see how many people have just had it drilled into them that you cannot give negative feedback up the chain. Mm -hmm. it's, it's such a, it's, it goes against, I feel like, how you're trained almost. Or it's receiving it too. So another like doing a lot of exit surveys for previous companies, a lot of people often say like, I have no idea where I stand with my manager. Like I've never know if I'm doing well. I only talk to my manager once a month. Like I have no idea if I would have a right to ask for more money because I don't know if I'm doing well or if I'm meeting my manager's expectations. And so um, again, it's like, well, what does the opposite of that look like? Where you're constantly getting feedback, where um, everything is laid on the table, where you're having a meeting weekly to have those conversations. Like there's a huge distinction between um, wanting to just like be the victim of these previous employer situations and wish that you had it different differently um, versus really leaning into and stepping into what that alternative could look like. Right, and, and one thing that I think really kind of speaks to that is the, the weekly one-on-ones yep. that are within the company. Um, with, here at Princeton Mortgage, every week you have a one-on-one -on -one with, your, with your manager. Yep. And so, like I remember when I first started, I dreaded my one-on-ones. Because yeah. I was like, I just like, first of all, I felt overwhelmed with all the stuff I was learning. I didn't think that I was keeping up with everybody else. Yeah. Um, and I would just like, I would dread these one-on-ones. But then you, you get into the habit of, radical candor of saying like exactly how you're feeling exactly what you need um, and your manager tells you the same thing and you just like instead of taking it and getting it getting defensive you say okay this is what I need to do yeah um, I had a previous English professor who went and did a silent retreat in California for like a month where there's absolutely no speaking interesting and she said when she came out of that that she like learned a lot about herself because she was in there like doing yoga and like all of these things and like in her brain was like formulating these stories about people that she's never spoken to like wow that girl looked at me weird like why doesn't she like me she must not like me like these sort of things and it over the course of the month it was like getting comfortable with yourself and then also realizing like how much we make up in our head and like i see that sort of happen in the workplace too like when i had my i had a one-on-one -on -one with my manager and i was like i feel like i'm doing a really terrible job but also based on our culture, like I know you would have told me that and you haven't told me that, so like I must not be, but like we get used to like no feedback also means that like you might be doing terrible. We're used to that too. Yeah, it's it, you really do write these own stories in your head. I had something happen some, uh, recently where my I, I had had a couple things go wrong and then my manager changed my one-on-one -on -one to like early in the morning one day and I was like, oh great, they're just gonna let me go first thing yeah. in the morning. And then it, like, it wasn't anything like that. It was she had something else going on in the afternoon and I was like, why, did, uh, I got myself totally freaked out. You really do, you'll, you'll like take the bare amount of, the, the bare minimum information and build this whole story that's like against you. Yeah. And then, um, but so it is, so it is nice to have that one, once a week check in like, okay, you know, they had a lot of feedback. I am kind of, I need to step it up, mm -hmm. you know, and then, or, you know, you're doing a great job and then, but for the past week, I've thought that I've been doing awful. It, it, it's yeah. nice to know where you stand, which is something 100%. that you don't get at most companies. And I've never gotten it. Which is why you go into that meeting thinking it's a problem. Right. Instead of thinking like that it could be something good. Because we're so like, if we don't hear from someone, mm -hmm. that's funny. And the, the, repeat, the repeated process of this, it really does help your brain stop with yes. all that negativity. Because you're like, I'm working myself up for no reason. Like, right. so this is going to be fine. And even if it's not fine, it'll be fine. Because... 
I'm going to be a player and not a victim, which is another thing that, that Princeton speaks on a lot. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about player versus victim mentality? So that um, is, is, I spoke to that a little bit more about like when people are complaining about previous employers, like just setting back and accepting that like everything is just happening to you and you have no control over it. Um, being a player is, is really leaning into the situation. And, and again, going back to what we spoke to with like, here's a problem. I'm the CEO of my own life. Um, I can take this and I can handle it and I can move forward to it. Like I have control over what's happening um, or maybe in the outcome or some of the decision-making process. So instead of just allowing everything, like allowing things to happen to you, just like taking charge of all of that. And that's something that do you kind of, when you're like back to the interview process, when you're telling people about this and you're reading their face, like can you kind of pick out people that are not going to thrive here or like? Oh yeah, when it comes to the victim mindset, you can hear it most easily when you ask someone why they're looking mm -hmm. um, for a job because you'll hear a lot of people speak to like, I was so overworked at my last company or like there were all these organizational problems and like they'll present all of these situations and then I'll ask like, well, what, what recommendations did you make to solve that problem? Or like what in some people will say, you know, there was just like a lot of red tape and I made these recommendations and, didn't, and it just like fell on deaf ears and didn't go anywhere. Or you'll hear someone be like, well, that's not really my place to like say that. So I didn't say that or just like create more um, excuses versus taking charge of that. So you can hear it a little bit, but that's the easiest question to ask. Interesting. So so when, when, you are re when you're reading someone's response on something like that and, and you can tell that they have been living in the victim mentality at their last job, like, is it does it seem to you like, okay, I, I, this is somebody I'm going to have to work on or is it like this person probably not going to be Princeton material? I think it depends on the totality of the situation, like has the company that they're currently with gone through a lot of growth and maybe that created some of these problems. Was this just like an individual having a really hard time with their manager? Um, it's really, I would really have to look at the, yeah. the whole conversation. It seems very nuanced. It seems like, I mean, it, it seems like your career path like has kind of led you right to the right where you need to be like it seems like it's a good fit for you but also like the interview process is just really flawed okay tell can can you speak about it a little bit yeah that's not princeton specific but like the interview process like we're, we're having a conversation 30 minutes to an hour maybe several conversation um maybe several conversations over the course of a few weeks and it's like we we base such a big decision on like really such an such an elementary practice like anyone can say anything um i'm a, i'm especially suspicious when i interview other like recruiters or other people in the hr space because i'm like you interview everyone all the time i'm like super suspicious of any <laughs> answer that you give me right now but it's just not a good way to see how someone is going to do under pressure, how likely they are to learn and take on new initiatives and new practices. Like, are they going to sit here and tell me that they were just in like this lousy situation and they are ready to be a player and switch their mindset? Like, are they true to that? Will that really happen? And there's different assessments and things that you can do to try to, to figure that out but that's why if you are utilizing tools outside of just an interview like you can't just pick one like you can't just look at an assessment and go okay this person is or isn't a good fit or just look at their resume without an interview um, unless you're really just basing it off of years of experience 
Okay. And so to go back to kind of what you were saying, like, since this is a problem that you've identified, what are you doing to change that? I think that the more information you collect, the better. We are looking at transitioning over to hiring committees versus just one person or one main person having majority decision making and also including someone in the in the hiring process who's not in that department. So they can just have like a really objective opinion on the person, their background, how well they think they're going to fit with what they know that team to need. Um, so we can trial and error a few different things. There's also a concept of just eliminating all decision-making authority from a hiring manager because they're going to be most desperate for finding someone and sometimes when a position's been open for a long time they're just like this person works like we'll get them in there and so if you take that decision from them then it relies on everyone else who's maybe a little less biased. Um, we're also looking at some predictive analytic tools when it comes to our positions like processing and underwriting where we can build out profiles based on our top three performers in those positions. And when someone applies, we'll be able to look at how well um, they fit within that profile. If it's like a really easily defined role where it's like, we know this is what has been successful, like how similar to that person are they? but that wouldn't work in a role that requires a lot of creativity or a lot of decision making. So you just have to um, play around with a few different approaches based on the position. That's interesting. So it's almost like the the analogy that it brings to mind is like um, the BAU, it's the, the behavioral analysis unit, is like where, you know, with criminal profilers, how they're like, well, this is, this is the profile yeah. of this criminal, this is what they're going to be. You guys kind of do the same thing, but tailored toward jobs. Say, like, kind of like, this is the kind of person that we need mm -hmm. who fits this mold. Yeah, it's really successful in things like sales positions, too, because yes, everyone is an individual and they're, they're likely to respond to things differently, but there are key attributes that are like proven to be successful in certain positions, specifically sales, that it's like, you probably have to be really outgoing, like you have to be organized or what have you. So it just, again, it's just another data point. It's not something that you can base your whole decision on. It's interesting. I, you know, this has been an enlightening conversation because I've always wondered what all goes into these decisions when it comes to hiring and, and offboarding and stuff like that. It, it, it's good to know that there is like so much consideration that goes across the board. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been very cool to, to hear you talk about it. Um, I have an icebreaker question that I usually try to ask toward the beginning, okay. and I'm going to tailor this one for you because I know you're not really a big uh, movie TV watcher. Yeah. Um, I, I, you sound so lame. I don't. I'm, I'm not trying to make you sound lame. You are awesome. Uh, but this is a question that I, use, I used to try to ask at the beginning, but lately I've been asking it toward the end because we've been getting into the meat a little bit. But just to you know, let people get to know, know your deal a little bit, what would you say your favorite book is and why? It, oh, would you have asked if, like my favorite movie? Yeah, I would have asked your favorite movie. But, I mean, book is just as good. Well, I absolutely will not pick a favorite book. Okay, all right. So... All right, let me re Well, tell okay. me why. Tell me why. Okay. Um, I find I like to read historical books, and so I'm always learning about, like, different people or different time periods, and I, like, just can't pick one specific person. I feel like for me to pick a favorite book would be to pick a favorite, like, historical figure or period of, in time, and I just, like, won't do that. Okay. There are certain books that I, like, really enjoy and recommend to people. Um, lately, it's an it's a little bit older at this point, but, like, I've been recommending um, 
The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Oh, I Larson. love that book. It's such a good such book, Such a cool right? book, yes. It's like a good cut for people who like, when I say historical, they're like, oh wow, like that sounds so boring. It's like, that's like a good dabble with like the World Fair and H.H. H. Holmes. Oh, and just how unsupervised Chicago was and yeah. people just disappearing. Yeah. I mean, oh, that's a wild story. Good choice. So, uh, okay, so Devil in the White City. Is one like... I, re I find that that one's like a good introduction. To Definitely. People. I love anything Eric Larson. He's he's great. What's your other favorite Eric um, Yeah. Now you're going to put me on the spot here because I know I've read at least two of his other books and I cannot name them right now. Thunderstruck? No. Give me another one. The um, There's one of them about like... There's one about the... Um, like one of the ships coming over from... See now, I'm, like now, it's, I'm yeah, embarrassed yeah. now because, but I, I, I have read Eric Larson, and I, sure. I, I'm gonna have to look at his list of titles because I know I've read like three of them. But Devil in the White City was my about favorite. Nazi Germany. Uh, maybe, I don't know. And then he also wrote a book about the Titanic sister ship, and that the name of that ship is. It might have been the one about Nazi Germany, but I, I'm gonna have to look because now I'm gonna have to back up what I said here. Thunderstruck look. is about the inventor of um, the telegraph, the wireless telegraph? No, that wasn't it either. But um, I did really love Devil in the White City. H.H. H. Holmes was a madman. It's crazy. Um, so... By that's really unsupervised. Oh, it's crazy. Like, girls would just, like, go like, there to work and then just disappear. just, like, moved there from, like, Oklahoma to go. Uh, it's crazy. And he was dragging around the kids with him all over the place. I mean, yeah, that, that's a whole story. If you're interested in like architecture and some of these like classic architects and like what that they like Olmsted that did the Biltmore House and yes yeah, so what so I um, this, that's also why I can't pick one favorite book because I also read a book about Frank Lloyd the architect mm -hmm. and that was like a totally separate book because he had a really wild history like someone burnt down his house and like part of his family was in there when it happened it's like super super sad but um he like is in the Devil in White City as mm -hmm. one of the architects that are like brought in for it. I like love the, yep. the interaction. And Olmsted, who did the Biltmore House here yeah. in North Carolina, yeah. Super interesting. Um, Devil in the White City, check it out. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll go with Devil in the White City for your book. That's a, that's a good choice. No, 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 no. Okay, so all right, what's your, what's your deserted island book? If you had to be in a deserted island with one book that you could read forever, what's it gonna be? Like read over and over again? Until you get sick of it and there's nothing else to read. I've never reread a book. I shared that stat with you recently until I reread Harry Potter again. What? I had never reread a book until I reread I reread re all of Harry I've Potter. I've never read again. Harry Potter. I, you gotta read it. No. <laughs> or like the Hunger Games or like what would I reread? This uh, not a desert island book. I don't know. I need to think about that. Okay. I well, feel like I've read some books in my past that, like, I maybe wasn't able to like fully wrap my head around just because I was probably younger. Like some pop culture analysis that mm -hmm. I'd like to come back to, but not over and over again. That'd be so dated after like a year or two. Fair enough. So historical, you know, different time periods, different people. That's what interests you, and and that makes sense because you deal with people, you deal with how, you know where people are coming from and how they're going to transition, and yeah. so I mean it seems like 
you, you know, everything kind of wraps up perfectly into into your job title. It's, that's amazing. I told you, it's all very intentional. <laughs> it it seems no like surprises it. surprises here. That's awesome. Just don't wash your diapers and let the, the yes. ceiling flood it again. Yeah. Um, well, Aaron, thank you so much for stopping by for an episode of Effortless Thanks. Conversations. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Um, check in next week, and we'll have another guest.